0: And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions.
1: 18 plus. Welcome to episode 107 of TV's top five, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined by my friend, co-host, and THR's chief TV critic, Dan Feinberg. Dan, how are you, my friend?
2: I'm okay. I'm a little bit nervous to say anything because there has been so much news this week that there's a chance that the longer I talk, something new could break right in the middle of the thing I'm saying.
1: I feel you, Dan. I feel you hard on that one, because as we record this, some breaking news just came in. Brooklyn Nine-Nine will end with its previously announced eighth season on NBC. It's being delayed until next season, the 21-22 broadcast season. It will consist of only 10 episodes I'm bummed you know I, I talk about that show a lot um, it's one of my all-time favorites more than parks I'll say that in my controversial opinions you can, you can add me on Twitter but the show has, has gotten my family through a lot of the pandemic I think you know we've probably cycled through the complete series at least four times on Hulu so far during quarantine and it's just look it, it makes me happy it's and I'm really curious to see what's gonna happen and as for the delay, Nobody wants to drop this in April when there's like tons of competition with no promotion. NBC, you know, allegedly wants to make a big push out of the final season and market it right and not bury it and make it into a big event. But at the same time, it's no secret that they've had to throw out scripts in the wake of Black Lives Matter, because how do you make a cop comedy funny in this climate? There's also been production delays because of the pandemic and There's just a lot going on. Plus, NBC possibly will have the Olympics. So a crowded schedule wanting to treat its veteran show right and stick the landing at a a time where all eyes are going to be on this show. So lots going on there.
2: And it is a big enough week of news in which that is merely a piece of our headlines. Uh, Normally, under some circumstances, we might even be talking about about Super Bowl ratings as their own topic. And, you know, that also, we're just going to deal with that right here. Guess what? They were down.
1: They were down. And did you get did you catch those Paramount Plus ads Dan? What a mess.
2: I I caught all the ads um which were as always slightly disappointing but occasionally entertaining. Uh yeah, the the Paramount TV Plus the Paramount Plus ads were were dumb and I don't think they really convinced anyone to be excited for Paramount Plus, but I do think they had people making fun of Paramount Plus and at this point in this landscape that's actually not so bad, you know? Like, if you, if you just get people to acknowledge that Paramount Plus is a thing, that becomes enough. I mean, hell, worked for Quibi.
1: <laughs> yeah, but at the same time, there was that Disney ad that, that was promoting their streaming bundle, and that was incredibly effective. It's like, here's a brand, here's a brand, here's a brand, all recognizable. And look, I, I cover this industry. I've been doing this a long time. And there were some of these Paramount Plus ads where I'm like, who is that? I had no idea. You know, but
2: I don't think you were supposed to be able to get everyone because I think the entire point of the Paramount Plus ads was we've got a lot of stuff. We've got something for everyone. So if you don't recognize that Anson Mount is on one of the Star Trek discoveries and on his (laughs) own show, I mean, he's
1: recognizable because he's in a Star Trek. Costume, Uh, of course, but
2: so, but uh, you know, and so either it means something to you that they're going to have Dora the Explorer, or it doesn't. Either you recognize Snooky immediately and go,
1: "Yay, I love that." Did not do that. Probably was among the ones that I didn't know they were.
2: Uh, But but I think that was sort of what their goal was, as opposed to the Disney Plus thing, where they really do have a a number of at this point established disney plus brands that are universal you can stick baby yoda there but they even
1: captioned star wars right star wars marvel nat geographic right like there was none of that on paramount plus and it's like you know you want people to come and be excited you know like there were you know some of our other esteemed colleagues were tweeting like where is the show that's going to make me want to sign up on on launch and that's not well first of all there's already a service that has a bunch of stuff that no one's really paying attention to because they're not really part of the conversation remotely in the same way as something that like HBO Max which which you know isn't 8 years old like CBS All Access is but it's the
2: but it's still to me it's what they're doing is they're selling the library and the brand and if you compare it to how HBO Max when it launched was unable to do that or have original programming that got people in the door. I think they're saying, look, we we aren't we don't have a marquee show that is going to premiere as part of Paramount Plus in March. They just they, don't.
1: Right. But it, the difference here is HBO Max was, you know, they were supposed to have the Friends reunion at launch that was delayed by COVID. They were supposed to have a ton of other content that was all delayed by COVID. Viacom CBS has known this launch is coming. CBS All Access has been a platform that's been there for eight years and has content like there's a development pipeline you could have something that that would be ready or to market or i mean they marketed yellowstone the prequel but but I think that the library of that is on Peacock, you know, it's, you know, there's where are the South Park characters, you know, like there's so much other stuff going on that, you know, I, I feel like this is headlines plus now, but you get the idea. It, to yes, me, it wasn't we, terribly effective.
2: We, we just made a topic out of something that was really just our opening banter. So uh, maybe we should really probably get to uh, two headlines because there's still a lot of news and a great long interview in store.
1: Oh my God, this really does feel like a peak TV week again. It was so busy. So leading off, speaking of Super Bowl, Paramount Plus had a blink and you missed it promo for a Yellowstone prequel series, the project titled Why 1883, which rolls right off the tongue, is part of a new nine figure deal from creator Taylor Sheridan that he signed with Viacom CBS.
2: Yeah, it, it that is that is a bad title because you know, why the last man, etc. it's just a bad title.
1: Anyway. Um, think, think of SEOs, network execs. In casting
2: uh, news, Pedro Pascal and Bella Ramsey will star in HBO's highly anticipated uh, The Last of Us based on the hit video game series of the same name. Uh, Pedro Pascal's casting was announced at almost the exact same minute as a less happy thing that happened to a co-star on The Mandalorian that we're going to talk about in our first topics. That was a little uh, HBO's Game of Thrones prequel House of the Dragon has added a bunch of actors, including Steve Toussaint, Reese Evans, Eve Best, and uh, Sonoya Mizuno. So there you go. Uh, Claire Danes has replaced Karen Knightley in the Apple drama Essex Serpent. Christina Milian has replaced the late Naya Rivera in the Step Up series at Stars. Chiwetel Ejiofor will star in The Man Who Fell to Earth at Paramount Plus from producers Alex Kurtzman and Jenny Lumet. And this is about to be another tease.
1: We'll have much more from Jenny Lumet in this week's showrunner spotlight segment. It is a great and fascinating interview, and she does not hold back. Elsewhere, a week after renewing nearly its entire slate, the CW has handed out a straight-to-series order for an update of the 4400 and picked up pilots for a live-action Powerpuff Girls drama from Greg Berlanti and Diablo Cody, as well as Ava DuVernay's DC entry Naomi and a new dramedy from Jane the Virgin creator Jenny Snyder Ehrman
2: in new series pickups to all the boys star lana condor will top line netflix's comedy boo bitch from on my blog co-creator laura ingerich
1: can you just say boo bitch again man boo
2: bitch Boom, i like bitch i'm here the, for that title dan it's the com <laughs> it's the comma that makes it as it opposed really to yeah boo bitch it's boo bitch, bitch. okay <laughs> Anyway, Renee Zellweger will star in NBC's limited series The Thing About Pam, based on one of Dateline's most popular true crime stories. Over at Peacock, the streamer is reuniting the cast of The Best Man with its original creative team for a new limited series titled The Best Man Final Chapters, which sounds really ominous. But it will continue the uh, adventures from the first two features in the franchise and on the renewal front, HBO Max has picked up Search Party for a fifth season.
1: Elsewhere, Outlander and For All Mankind executive producer and noted Disney superfan Ron Moore has left his longtime home at Sony for a rich eight-figure overall deal with Disney's 20th TV. The first project under the pact will be Swiss Family Robinson for Disney+. And you can hear more from Ron Moore, see what I did there, next week on TV's Top 5. And speaking of overall deals, Mike Judge's longtime pact with HBO has expired, and the cable network has dropped both of the comedies from the Silicon Valley co-creator that were in the works there.
2: So much news. In development news, HBO is teaming with Billions co-creator Andrew Ross Sorkin for a GameStop movie. There are lots and lots of GameStop projects. You're going to get tired of it before the movies come. The Game of Thrones creators have lined up their third show at Netflix, a drama based on the Pulitzer Prize-winning novel The Overstory. Lee Daniels is adapting Sam Greenlee's spy thriller, The Spook Who Sat by the Door, as an FX drama. And Schitt's Creek favorite Emily Hampshire will star in and co-write an update of Norman Lear's Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman, a potential series that is being shopped by Sony TV.
1: And wrapping up in another piece of headlines, that could have truly been its own topic. The battle over packaging fees between the Writers Guild and the agencies has come to an end after a nearly two year standoff with WME signing the Code of Conduct. More than 7000 writers can now return to their agencies, which will have to divest ownership of their affiliated studios and get that stake down to 20 percent. Dan, this is a topic that a year and a half ago, two years ago, was gripping the town. Everyone was afraid of what was going to happen, and now it's almost like a footnote, it's over, because that's how much our landscape has shifted in the, in the past year plus.
2: Uh, and I was ultimately not really sure now that everything is clean and good, if this was going to have any impact on our listeners, as it were. But you gave me a compelling argument, sort of a positive that was going to come from this no longer being a contentious and opening question. So give the quick background on that, and then let's move on to our actual top five.
1: I mean what's interesting to me is that this opens the door for a lot of young writers who need agents to speak on their behalf to need agent who need agents to open the doors and schedule meetings and get their scripts into the right hands and a lot of those young younger writers are the diverse writers that are in such high demand because everyone is realizing that they need to do right and reflect not only have the shows reflect our country, but have the writing stats reflect them. And what's interesting too is, you know, during the the standoff, that's where you saw a lot of, you know, the social activism, right? You know, the, um, you know, a lot of the hashtags on on Twitter. You know, the th, you know, the staffing boost hashtags, and a lot of spreadsheets that that writers made on their own, and showrunners giving signal boosts to to writers that they read that but don't have the ability to staff, and trying to to use you know social media platforms to help. Young writers get their foots in the door without their agencies and without their managers. So this opens that door. You know, these are the writers that, that need that representation the most, and these are the writers who should be taken care of the most and shouldn't have to worry about packaging fees and so forth. So welcome back, writers, agencies. You know, let's get back to work.
2: Good and persuasive point. And let's get to this week's top five.
1: Leading off this week, we're going to combine our first and second topics to discuss the controversy surrounding Joss Whedon and Gina Carano.
2: Number 1. Damn. Number 2.
1: This week, former Buffy stars have come out in support of Ray Fisher in his allegations that he was the subject of abusive behavior from Justice League director Joss Whedon. Charisma Carpenter issued a lengthy statement this week in which he detailed the Buffy creator's alleged misconduct, including claims that he was cruel to her while she was pregnant. Quote, "Joss Whedon abused his power on numerous occasions while working together on the sets of Buffy and Angel she wrote." Joss was the vampire. Meanwhile, Buffy star Sarah Michelle Gellar backed Carpenter, saying that she was proud to be associated with the character but didn't want to be forever associated with the name Joss Whedon and noted that she stands with all of the survivors of abuse. Co-stars Michelle Trachtenberg and, and Amber Benson also spoke out in support of Carpenter, with the former also alleging she dealt with inappropriate behavior from Whedon when she was a teenager on Buffy.
2: Carano, meanwhile, was fired from her co-starring role or guest starring role on Star Wars offshoot The Mandalorian after social media posts basically saying that being a Republican today was like being Jewish during the Holocaust. This was the second time that the outspoken conservative and former MMA star found herself in hot water in November. She mocked mask wearing and falsely suggested that voter fraud occurred during the 2020 presidential election. After being fired by Lucasfilm, Carano was immediately dropped by her agency. Joining us this week to discuss both controversies in a single topic is Hollywood Reporter's senior Heat Vision editor, Aaron Couch. Welcome back to the podcast, Aaron.
3: Thanks for having me.
1: So let's start with Joss. Has he responded to the comments from his former Buffy stars yet?
3: No, you know, he he is not commented on any of this stuff. Uh, The only time he ever responded um, since Ray Fisher started calling him out was Ray gave kind of a very explosive interview to Forbes a few months ago. Uh, Some very and and that is the only time he's responded, which was through an attorney to kind of knock back some of the claims in that. But um, yeah, he does. He he has not responded yet. And um, he I don't know if he will.
1: So so what happens next? Has he been dropped by his agency? I mean, Gina was dropped so fast.
3: Yeah, that that was instant. That was within a couple hours of Lucasfilm dropping her. Um, no, as of now, uh, he's still with CAA. So, I mean, Leslie, you have a pretty good sense, actually, of this sort of how this works. I mean, what, what's your feeling on that, actually?
1: I mean, I don't know how anyone is still repping him right now, but, you know, he's, it, it, you know, look, it, it hurts my heart to, to, to report on this stuff and to hear these these, these claims. Make no mistake, I, I have no doubt I believe what everyone is saying, you know, as a reporter, I'm trained to be, you know, we are all trained to be biased and impartial at the same time. Buffy is the show that made me fall. That made me want to be a TV writer that made me want to report on TV. And, you know, it's heartbreaking because that show is so important to so many people because, you know, of of what that, that character represented at a time when you didn't see strong women like that on television, You know, so what I think, I I think HBO has, you know, has to figure out how to market the Nevers, which originally was going to be, you know, from the creator of Buffy and the director of Avengers, which sells itself. And now you have a bigger problem and it's more pressure on that show to really deliver. And it's a mess. But in terms of what, you know, the bigger question is, is Joss hireable right now? You know, and you've been working on the investigation into Ray Fisher and and what's going on with Warner Media. Um, what's the latest on the investigation that's happening there? Have they come out and said anything about it about Joss and rendered a, a ruling or anything from their investigation?
3: Yeah. So the investigation, um, you know, we still don't know much about it. They uh, they they said um, that it is closed and remedial action was taken. We don't know what that means. But, you know, I think reading between the lines, people do, do see that that investigation and, uh, directly led to, you know, him exiting the Nevers, right? So, um, you know, certainly Ray Fisher... Let's
1: put, let's put exiting in quotes.
3: Exiting, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Ray Fisher certainly did a victory lap after that, after uh, Joss, uh, Joss left, you know, and, and he claimed it was because of the investigation. So, so yeah, WarnerMedia is, is not going to release any more details. I mean, we'll see if through reporting other things come out, though.
2: Well, I've been sort of personally, not surprised, but interested by kind of what Ray Fisher has and hasn't been able to say this entire time. And he's given some details, but my sense is probably barely the tip of the iceberg. So what what is your sense regarding, A, you know, if there's going to be a point at which he's actually going to be able to say these things, and and B, how much is actually out there, you know, just in the investigation on what actually happened on Justice League.
3: That's what's been, I think, uh, frustrating for even for people that have been uh, strong Ray Fisher supporters is the lack of concrete details, right? Um, he's He has said, I have the receipts, I have, you know, certain things that would be incriminating, but he, he hasn't revealed much of anything. Um, I think that certainly... Uh, These Buffy stars coming out and backing him, um, not that they have firsthand knowledge of this stuff, really was kind of a shot in the arm to 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 his credibility, though. You know, it was really kind of much needed because it's been months and months of people asking him, you know, for interviews uh, to to just share what he knows and, and not really getting much in return. So the fact that they came out, I think, yeah, really has kind of kind of energized this whole thing.
2: Yeah, and we, you know, sort of need to emphasize when we say sort of frustration about not knowing these things, it's not so much that, I mean, it's not at all, I don't think that we question it. And I think we're very well aware that the reason why he hasn't been saying things is because there's a process at work that is preventing him from saying these things. And and so, like, on one hand, my response is, gosh, I really wish he would just spill the beans— he's taking, you know, there's a legal resource, there's a recourse, there's a procedural recourse that he's taking, and that is why we don't know any more than we do. It's not that he's being cagey or, I mean, obviously this is a guy who does not care how this impacts him. He wants to speak his truth. He just obviously can't for, for reasons that, you know, we understand, and reasons that don't govern the Buffy people who, you know, if it's 20 years past, what happened to charisma Carpenter? You know, there, she's not going through a legal process, so she can say what she wants to say.
3: Yes, he he uh, seems, uh, from what he has said, is he's really interested in in change, right? And and hopefully changing this corporation's culture is, is his ultimate goal, right? Regardless of what happens to his career, that's what he's he stated. So it, it does seem like through that legal process, that's what he's he's hoping for. But
1: so my my other question for you, you know, obviously he he was Joss was doing the Nevers not doing the Nevers anymore. His name will still be on it, of course, as a creator and exec producer. But did he have any film projects lined up? He has nothing on the calendar, right?
3: Nothing lined up. You know, I mean, he'd been kind of talking about a uh, a Batgirl movie a few years ago, um, left that. And then I I, I remember... uh, the, it was a very exciting moment, the Infinity War red carpet. He was the first person, kind of came early, talked to him and, you know, reflecting on kind of a victory lap in a sense, because he started all this. And uh, he was saying, yeah, I'm working on, I'm writing a TV project, which of course ended up being The Nevers. And if you think about that, was just three years ago. There were a few things more exciting than thinking, wow, the guy, this guy is making this new TV project and, and he's at the Infinity War premiere. And now it's just a totally different thing. You know, the, it's, it's wild to think about.
1: Yeah, and don't forget, there was the Buffy the Vampire Slayer update that was in development at Disney's 20th Century Fox TV. Wait, that was in development at Disney's 20th TV, and he was supposed to exec-produce. If you go back and look it up, you know, it's a diverse take on Buffy, and he was attached as an exec-producer. And as I understand it, Disney wanted to get his blessing before moving forward because it's, you know, I remember a couple years ago that there was an attempt to do a Buffy movie without him, and the internet just rejected it, like, instantaneously. So what happens with Buffy in development if it actually goes like from your vantage point Aaron do you and and Dan too do you guys think that that Joss can come back from this at this point knowing what we know now and knowing that there's probably a lot more information that eventually will have to come out?
3: I mean Leslie to your point about the internet rallying behind him uh that that's something that he's he's lost, right? I mean it, it's been kind of a slide so if you don't have that that base Uh, support, I think it's really hard, even just from a fan perspective, to come back.
2: Uh, And to to me, sort of the the erosion of the support for Joss in, like, the last five years has been remarkable, uh, because there was initially the wave of controversy that was just about his personal life, and that was, uh, you know, harassment allegations and allegations of infidelities and things like that. And— those were things that, without any question, soiled and sullied his image, because his image all of this time—and, you know, he, he brought it upon himself. His branding of himself was, I'm a woke feminist, a uh, man, I'm, you know, I'm the guy who gives the women the best parts in the world, all of that. You know, this, this was what his brand was. This was the thing— people stood in line at Ballroom 20 and Hall H to listen to him opine about it. Comic-Con, there would be whole panels where it was just Joss being evasive about his upcoming projects. And you would sit there for 90 minutes and he would give half answers to a lot of things and everyone would be like, yay, we love Joss so much. And so already the, the personal life accusations had already gotten to the point where the people who under most circumstances would have been like, you know, ride or die for Joss, who would have, who would have done absolutely anything for him, who would have, you know, who would have stood in line for an imaginary streaming show that he was doing, whatever. Those people already had their enthusiasm well and truly dampened, but I still think there was affection. And, uh, you know, just, just this this kills it. I mean, there's there's nothing. There's no other way to to put it. I you know I assume probably if you go around Twitter, there are people supporting him or who are saying you got to hear both sides or saying why did Charisma not make these complaints twenty years ago? Screw the people well, it's who say a that. Different it's, landscape.
1: It's an exactly. It's a, art, it's, or, it's know, a different landscape.
2: Ridiculous. Also, you you just you you don't get to tell people when victims yes. are going to talk about. Thanks. That it's just not your it's just not your right or your responsibility. People will talk when they talk.
1: Um Okay, okay. I have a question for you, Dan. <laughs> yeah. Does listen, and I say this as a like I said, a noted Buffy super fan. does all of this taint how you view Buffy?
2: Of course. I you know, does it does it entirely permanently destroy the record of a show that people loved and that people built their identities around? No, it doesn't. But does it, does it
1: taint it? Yes, of course it does. Does Could could you rewatch episodes the same way today that you could have oh, you know fired. the same
2: the same way of course not and and if you look at every single one of his shows honestly every single one if you look at if you look at Buffy and you look particularly in the ye- later years with the stuff with willow and uh Tara and all of that and all of the things that people over the years said I'm a little uncomfortable with this comma but it's Joss ergo it must be through the the, the prism of this man who we worshiped and and you know you look at you look at dollhouse which is a a thematically ambitious fairly Screwed up show in a number of different ways, and I think you know he admitted at the beginning that he didn't really know what the show was. So maybe if you look at those early episodes, those are perhaps the most pure evocation of Joss because those were before he had the guards up, before he had the story. But I don't think you could go back and look at a show like Dollhouse right now and and process it as anything other than the work of the person we're currently being concerned about. You know the because the entire show is about the entire show is about people using these dolls for horrible, nefarious purposes and sort of people losing their agency and being manipulated by the system. Well, at one point, it seemed like it was a commentary on that, but maybe Joss was the system. Maybe Joss was the one using people towards nefarious ends. And, you know, whether or not that's even true, there's no way to watch it now without thinking, hmm, maybe it kind of reads like that. And it didn't read that way at the time. And just so much of his work you look at the stuff that Charisma Carpenter was talking about, all she did was fill in details and gaps of things that we already kind of knew. What she did was she gave explanations for things that had already Always bothered people. And so there's a lot of that. Basically, we just have more knowledge of things that were happening in the nooks and crannies that suddenly make what's actually happening in the foreground look very different. And I don't think there's any way that you will ever be able to look at these shows in the same way. But I I still think you can watch them. I'm not going to say don't watch them, just accept and acknowledge it's not going to play the same way or you're going to be have to be in denial to make it play the same way and if you can do that great i tend not to be able to but you know i just some sometimes sometimes i watch Chinatown and Chinatown's a great movie and i still know who Roman Polanski is and so yeah it's it's tough <laughs>
1: Yeah. All right. Well, let, let's let move on now. So, Aaron, you uh, have been covering the, the Gina Carano implosion. What's the impact here on her with Mandalorian? I mean, she was going to get a spinoff, right? Like this, she really just shot herself in the foot.
3: Yeah, it's pretty amazing because, you know, a source told me yesterday after this news broke that, you know, there was a big Disney investors day where they announced a lot of stuff and, you know, they had the the posters ready, Gina Carano. I, I, we think it was Rangers of the New Republic, which is people were th- saying, yes, that seems like the natural spinoff for her. And after she started, you know, she'd already done some problematic stuff, some stuff that was considered transphobic. But in November, she started tweeting about, you know, election fraud, you know, conspiracy theories and mass conspiracy theories. And so Disney said, oh, okay, gosh, we got ch- to change this. We can't announce her show for Investor Day. And apparently, ever since then, they have been looking for a way to get rid of her. And yesterday was just so over the pale that they decided this is the time. Like, this is, this is what's happening. So, so she's, she's gone from Star Wars. It, it was, you know, a huge opportunity to headline one of these shows. I mean, The Mandalorian is, is gigantic. Um, and, you know, UTA dropped her. And so, you know, I, I, I imagine that she still has a, quite a fan base, though. You know, she has, definitely has a, a very niche uh, but vocal. Um, kind of um donald trump-esque fan base so you know she can probably go on and do you know the steven seagal type still make some decent money do these kind of movies that nobody sees but maybe you know is sold overseas and things like that
2: do you have any sense of what her actual status was on the show like i've sort of seen this read and commented on in different ways whether she was fired or whether this was simply disney saying she's not going to come back to a guest starring role in which she wasn't really under contract anyway so
3: yeah i think it's kind of semantics right because the the lucasfilm statement was yeah she doesn't work for us and not only that she won't again and we think what she said was disgusting you know so they, they really did kind of uh, it was. It, it's really been interesting to see Lucasfilm, um, their evolution, because, you know, John Boyega and Kelly Marie Tran were subject to racist bullying, and Lucasfilm didn't really say anything. But over the past, you know, month, they've started to give these statements, you know, pushing back on this stuff. And this was kind of the next, the next step of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in terms of her status on the show, I mean, she was, of course, widely expected to be coming back for more and maybe her own spinoff. Maybe she didn't have a deal, you know, um, yet, but that, it, it, to, in my mind, it's still a firing, you know. But I guess technically, you could say, "Oh, we're just not bringing you back."
1: It was extremely definitive.
3: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but
2: it's it's sort of it's sort of where cutting ties is the difference between fired or not fired. You know, cutting ties is still oh, cutting, cutting ties, ties is
1: PR speak.
2: Sure, of course. Well, that's I
1: mean, come on.
2: But again, left for it- a
1: producing deal. I'm putting she, that in air but, quotes. But if
2: she didn't have a contract, she didn't have a contract. They're simply saying we're not allowing anyone to write her into any more scripts. And I uh, I mean,
3: who cares?
1: <laughs> <laughs> so so let's look at moving forward. So how do you have any sense of what the Mandalorian will do now?
3: I mean they have they have so many great characters and great actors. I think they just just move on, right? I mean, we have we they're they're they set up so many good ones. And this, you know, last season, Katie Sackoff and others. So yeah, they're fine. And I mean, the uh the Boba Fett show comes out first. They're figuring out what to do with Mandalorian season three, and they can go from there. Yeah, that
2: that to me is is where the key thing to note here is that. She's totally and completely irrelevant to the successful success of the Mandalorian. That, that that character was irrelevant to the narrative of the show. If you invested in her because you love her, I don't know what to say. That's fine. The show does not lose anything from her absence. And and that's sort of where kind of you you see the comparisons to maybe Roseanne, who was also fired from uh from her show by Disney, but Roseanne's name was on the darn show. There was a reasonable supposition that could be made at that point that hasn't proven to be true because the Connors has been very successful, um, particularly critically without her. But there was still the supposition that you could make that the show could not function without her because she was the show. Nobody with any sense whatsoever feels that Gina Carano was the Mandalorian. It's This is not like Baby Yoda had problematic tweets and they had to fire (laughs) him. I mean, seriously, (laughs) if, if they had had to sever ties with Baby Yoda, then you could make the legitimate case, okay, this is going to be a serious problem now for this show, and someone in Gina Carano's camp should have had the sense to tell her in the past 12 months, Baby Yoda is essential to this enterprise, you are not, shut the bleep up, or, I don't know, or don't compare yourself to Jews in the Holocaust. I mean, that's the thing. This is not Disney having a zero tolerance policy. Disney has a shitload of tolerance policy on people. She had months and months and months where Disney said, "Okay, fine, if you're being transphobic, we're not going to do anything. If you're making fun of mandates to wear masks, we're not going to do anything. She finally just hit up against the wall in the same way that Roseanne hit up against a wall. Roseanne, this was not one tweet she was fired from for. This is not one tweet Gina Carano was fired for. This is finally Disney saying, OK, fine, you went one step further than we're prepared to be quiet for. Also, as you mentioned, if they were giving her her own show, to some degree, this is Disney saving themselves from themselves. This is saying if we fire her now, we aren't going to have to deal with the possibility that someone in the next couple months are going to say, so what about that Gina Carano spinoff? Now, right, at so least you don't no have one put is going to a-
1: that. Yeah, because if she had her own show, most TV deals are for six seasons, so. So that would be, uh, you know, an exit package to have to negotiate, et cetera. So, yeah,
2: this yeah, this that's how I read this whole thing is sort of protect us from ourselves by closing all doors, which whatever, you know, that again, she could have been at any and again, she didn't need to be fired. That's the thing. She didn't need to be fired. At some point, someone could have just said to Jon Favreau, let's be honest, because he's the creative guy behind it. Yeah, just don't write her into any more episodes, period very simple you people might or might not have noticed we're just not using that character again we're moving on that was all they had to do there was no need to do something as formal as this
1: well this sends a message this is we as a company are not going to stand for crazy shit like this
2: are not going to stand for crazy shit like this we're going to have previously stood for all of but they stood for all of it they stood for it for months they simply finally made the decision. This is the limit to the crazy shit we're going to deal with. Yeah, this this is this is so far past a thing that she got fired for. It, she could have been fired for any number of those other things or simply anyone could have said. Right. I mean, or, it's, passed- you know,
1: strike one, strike two, strike ten. Yeah, you know, you saw however Pedro many pa- strikes you get at Lucasfilm or Disney, I don't so know. So many,
2: and you saw and you saw Pedro Pascal the other day on on Twitter showing his support for his sister who came out as trans, and so there is no way that Pedro Pascal, who is very 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 pro- progressive and left wing political on social media, there's no way that he. Can countenance what Gina Carano does on social media, he has to have res- reservations himself. Uh, so yeah, it's, to, to to me, this was the last straw. But there were so many straws that could have broken the camel's back before this, and it's bizarre that we had to reach this point where comparing yourself to a Jew in the Holocaust was the thing that finally someone said, "Okay, yeah, that that's that's
1: too far." <laughs> Aaron does does she have any other films in the works?
3: No, there, there's there's nothing coming up. So, I mean, it, it'll be interesting to see. You know, she'll pop up in something, I'm sure, but it won't be a studio movie or anything like that. Uh, or, you know, it'll be be some kind of uh, lower, lower rent thing, you know, but um, I'm sure it'll be coming, though. She hasn't responded yet to this, has she? No response, no response yet, um, which is kind of interesting. But I I imagine at some point she'll respond via social media or, you know, I'm sure.
1: Yeah, or higher crisis PR like Joss, you know. Mm -hmm.
3: Yeah,
2: I can I can think of several talk shows that would be perfectly happy to have her on as a guest to talk about how she's being muzzled.
1: (laughs) Aaron, thank you so much for joining us. You can follow Aaron on Twitter at at Aaron Couch, and all of his work on Heat Vision, THR's nerdy blog.
3: Thank you, Leslie and Daniel. Talk to you later.
2: Number three. Animation continues to be smoking hot, as this week HBO Max doubled down on its slate of originals in the adult animation space. Uh, Leslie did a very full breakdown of all of HBO Max's adult animation Projects, developments, etc. So, Leslie, break it down for us. What is HBO Max doing? And more importantly, in case people didn't listen to the segment where you talked about why anyone would be doing this a couple months ago,
1: why? Well, first, I just want to say that that you know HBO Max has a great animation slate, and I probably wrote a little bit too much on the topic in this week's story. It was probably like a twelve hundred word story for breaking news, but I'm very interested in this space. It is. It is blowing up. So this week, HBO Max handed out two-season order for Clone High from MTV Studios with original series creators Phil Lord, Chris Miller, and Bill Lawrence attached. They're doing an adult animated Velma, a Scooby-Doo prequel series focused on Velma. Also, by the way, if she's not gay, keep it. Mindy Kaling (laughs) will voice Velma and executive produce the third series picked up was something called Fired on Mars. It's a comedy based on a viral short that has recruited Pete Davidson as an exec producer and uh, to lead the voice cast. Those three new shows join a slate of adult animated fare at HBO Max that includes Gremlins. Dan, I know you're a, a big Gremlins guy. The I am, Boondocks. I am
2: nervous and wary about that one.
1: <laughs> the Boondocks is coming back with a two-season pickup royal comedy, The Prince, based on the Instagram feed, which is hilarious. Har- and of course, Harley Quinn. And then you've got a potentially animated Game of Thrones series in the works. So what is going on with all of this stuff? And look, HBO Max is not alone. They are not the only platform doing this. Everyone's doing this. Fox, for example, this week picked up an untitled animated comedy from uh, Rick and Morty co-creator Dan Harmon. There's, They have so much content over at Fox as they're as they're leaning hard into that space, they've got uh house broken bless the hearts, the great North. And then of course, stalwarts Bob's burgers, family guy and the Simpsons um, the new show, the Dan Harmon show, they will own 100% because they acquired bento box a big animation company. So they can produce all of their animated content in house. That's a huge move that they made a couple of years ago, you know, but, but look, you know, in success, Animated comedies, when they break out like Rick and Morty or A Family Guy or The Simpsons or Bob's Burgers, these become multi-billion dollar franchises. And I keep saying that every time we talk about it. But the the next piece of it that's super interesting is you can produce these shows cheaper than you you can for a scripted original series. They are safe to produce because, as we've written during the pandemic, you can record your voice stuff remotely. You can produce these in shared workspaces remotely. You know, so... There's a big upside in success if you hit, hit a home run and you get these big marketing things like, you know, here's a Rick and Morty apron for $9.99 at Hot Topic, you know, so the merchandising becomes valuable. And then the other piece of it, too, is they repeat really, really well on streaming services. You know, if you go back and look at like some of the, the Hulu blogs, you'll see things like Family Guy and Bob's Burgers are some of Hulu's best performing acquired content. Look, everybody talks about how The Office and Friends were mega hits on Netflix. Animation is the same thing on Hulu. That is a huge genre. Um, the fact that these shows repeat so well on streaming platforms is a good reason why HBO spent an estimated $500 million for exclusive domestic streaming rights to South Park. South Park is a Viacom CBS show. They've got 23 seasons and counting of a library that was available to them shortly after launch. That is a franchise that CBS owns that HBO bought to set, to build up its platform. So they're getting people in the door with South Park. Then they're going to develop all these other shows in the same genre with the hope that the South Park audience finds them. And that, first of all, they can get these shows up and on the air before South Park eventually goes back over to whatever Paramount Plus is going to be. So it's a fascinating genre to, to, to be following right now, and there is so much growth in in this space.
2: I find it interesting sort of what it also says about what people have been watching on HBO Max so far, because there was uh, a season two and three renewal uh, for Close Enough that was built into this yeah, deal, Yeah, so right? that
1: was renewed for a couple, for I think two more seasons.
2: And, and, and that's one where... I, I liked it. I didn't love it when I saw that. Well, it. I, I don't think a- you
1: can, you don't need to look at, at a two season renewal for an animated show as an investment that they like it. It's all, yes, obviously if they're renewing it, they like it, but usually animated shows take longer to produce, right? Simpsons is probably working on, you know, this, the episodes of the Simpsons that are airing right now were probably put together, you know, eight or nine months ago. So anytime that you do, you know, a multi-season pickup like that, it's because you want to keep, you know, give the writer's time, the animator's time and, and allow, allow all of that stuff to come together
2: of course and and this is this is just me thinking sort of in lieu of ratings because as we may have mentioned uh, these streaming services don't provide ratings
1: wait they uh, don't oh,
2: just sorry. try <laughs> just trying to figure out what people actually are watching on these services and so i i will i will believe because they did you know they, they were reasonably happy with close enough in that release. So I think that sort of indicates some people are watching it. I don't think there was any question that people were watching Harley Quinn. I think that uh, you, you know sort of that, out oh, in yeah. the world, out in the world and out in the ether you could sense that that was the kind of thing that they would want to have as a as a template available, you know, here's something that clearly works. I mean, it imagine both- if they
1: do spin-offs and they build that out the way that that, you know, Marvel has built out on on DC and if they build an animated universe out of Harley Quinn.
2: Oh, I would I would watch that and you and you go Everyone. and you look you look at uh, Harley Quinn and they've used so many of the established DC characters within it in the first two seasons. But I don't think there's any question that if you were to do two or three more spin-offs within that universe, basically just with the tone of that universe that people would be curious about the question of whether or not um, the Harley Quinn tone works for Everything in DC, whether it works for two or three other things in DC, or whether it is Harley Quinn and that character specific is something else. But yeah, there's there's nothing wrong with it. And having so many of these shows on just in the background is just so... Useful. You know, there's a reason why I keep watching as many of the Fox animated shows for as long as I have. Like, I still watch Family Guy. I don't know why I still watch Family Guy, but just because sometimes you need something on in the background for 22 minutes and it works better than a lot of stuff. But
1: that's Friends and Brooklyn Nine-Nine for me.
2: But even that, that's repeats. Like, I would never, I would never watch an episode of Family Guy a second time. Ever, but I do still watch each week's new episode. You may episode. be the only
1: person who will never watch those a second time. Oh, the,
2: the, the <laughs> show's fans unquestionably do. Well, there are more people who will, I think there are more people who won't watch episodes a first time. Uh, but the fact that I do still watch every episode of Family Guy, even though I almost never laugh at it, in contrast to Bob's Burgers, where I watch every episode and love it. But you know, these are that's how it goes. <laughs>
1: And while we are on the subject of HBO Max, I do want to note for our international listeners, HBO Max will launch in the summer in Latin America. So you're starting to see the global expansion that we've been talking about on the show. So lots going on in the animation sector, lots going on with global expansion for these newly launched streamers. Up next, it's time for our showrunner spotlight segment. Number
2: four.
1: Our guest this week won a bevy of awards for her script for 2008's Rachel Getting Married. Jenny Lumet has worked as a writer and producer on Star Trek Discovery and Star Trek Picard, where she collaborated with Alex Kurtzman. The duo co created CBS's Clarice, a sequel to Silence of the Lambs, focusing on Thomas Harris's Clarice Starling character. Welcome to the podcast, Jenny. For all listeners,
4: we just had an amazing like like seven minute conversation about random shit before this, and now
1: I'm gonna have absolutely nothing to say.
4: But hi! <laughs> I'm really glad to be here.
1: But I did learn that you are a big baseball fan, so there,
4: there's am, that. I am a baseball personality fan. There are certain um as we just oh, Mickey Rivers always <laughs> sort of caught my caught my yeah, he sort of sort of caught my fancy. And also Oh my god! Come back to me because I'm going to be <laughs> yeah, throughout yeah. the throughout the podcast. I'm going to be throwing names at
1: you. Uh, I'm here for that. Okay, cool.
2: Vintage '70s Mets and Yankees uh, players. I can I can feel like that's where we're going here.
1: That's are we going to talk about Oscar 80s. Gamble and his giant afro? Do you remember that or Mark the Bird Fidget?
2: <laughs> oh yeah. <Indeed>. <laughs> 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 okay, we need to get our <laughs> listeners to to tune back in right
4: now. <laughs>
1: So get, let's start at the beginning with Clarice. How did this all come together and how did your collaboration with Alex Kurtzman, you know, get started? Because you're doing like 17 different things with him.
4: I'm doing 17 different things with Alex Kurtzman and it's not a likely partnership. And I remember I met him in 2008, right about the time that, yeah, it was about like Rachel getting married, the time that came out. And I was on a general and he was in this tiny, tiny little office on a lot out here. I was in New York and I didn't know it was a temporary office because he, you know, did all the, the things. And I was like, who's this really nerdy guy in these khakis? And then we talked about nerdy stuff and he had all this candy and that's completely the way to my heart. And then the next time I met him, he was in his real life office and there was like sushi and like, you know, those people waving palm fronds and like a fireplace and massage. I was like, <laughs> do you know, are we in the right, are we going to get in trouble for being in here? And we ended up, Texting like monkey memes and and things like that back and forth to each other and became friends. And it, we thought, should we work together? And I thought, well, you do, you do robots. So if you can find, and I like to do really fucked up families. So if you can find a way for a robot to be like really mad at his dad, (laughs) you know, (laughs) and, and like turn his back on the family legacy. Great. Great. And then he sort of, he got me into television Um, By asking, he said, do you want to be a consultant on Sleepy Hollow? And I said, sure. I didn't really know what that was. There's a lot of actually things about television that I'm still not quite sure of. And it sort of built slowly from there. And he's a very persuasive guy. You kind of find yourself moving to California after 52 years in New York and making television shows, which was nothing, nothing. That was two years ago. Nothing on my radar at all. I had absolutely no idea that this is where I would be in uh, at the age of 54. It's just not happening.
1: And and now you're exec producing multiple Disco- Star Trek shows mm-hmm. and co-created Clarice, The Science of the Lambs, off shoot, which is what we're talking about yes. here today. So talk us through how the Clarice part of it came together, too. I mean, this is all fascinating.
4: It was one of those weird inception. Incep- Shin moments where someone—I don't remember if it was him or me—kind of said, "Where's Clarice? Where's Clarice Starling?" And um, Jonathan Demme created, uh, directed um, *Rachel Getting Married*, and but we didn't have deep Clarice conversations. Um, we were talking about another movie, and he—he, he, I saw the Oscar, and you know, and stuff like that. But I—we I, didn't—we didn't get deep on Clarice. But it struck me why hasn't she said anything in 30 years? And all the boys get to say stuff. So, so why? And she kind of won the whole game. You know, she was the one who, like, didn't, who ended up pretty okay. Um, and there were some complicated rights issues, I'm sure that everybody's heard about. And MGM didn't want to do it, and they didn't want to do it, and they didn't want any to let anybody have her. And then we sort of we pitched and we I have a weird sort of encyclopedic knowledge of the Thomas Harris universe um and I kept like whipping them out um and we wrote I was fascinated by what happens to you after that after you see that basement like what happens to you after you go through something like that and we met her, we saw, the last time we saw her, she had just graduated, she was a kid. Like, what does that leave you with between, in the seven years between Silence of the Lambs and Hannibal? Something happened. It's this whole mystery, and I'm, I, I kind of couldn't let it go. I couldn't let go, and now, like, here we are. It's really kind of extraordinary. I mean, I feel like everybody is kind of a daughter of Clarice on TV. And I was a school teacher, so I get very into the Persephone of Clarice. Everyone's like, okay, eyes glaze over, but I'm, you know, a nerd and I can talk about that stuff all day. But it's, what can I tell you? I mean, it's everything you want to do on TV. It's everything you want to do.
2: Well, I know you guys have talked about the rights issues, but I'm sort of fascinated by it. What do you guys actually have the rights to regarding incidents and characters and all of that? And what don't you? And what were the conversations like about what was being kept away from you versus what you were allowed to play around with?
4: I could list, but I'm not going to get everything right. <laughs> but we do, we have the stuff, I think, nobody sue me. I'm going to say, I'll, I can even say allegedly. Okay, Perfect. so no one sues me. Thank you. That was created in the same book that she, in which she was created. Dr. Lecter and Will Graham and Jack Crawford All existed, I believe, in Manhunter and Alan Bloom existed in Manhunter um, and Liza Lake existed in Manhunter. I see Thomas Harris. Love it. Love it. Um, So but the wonderful Barney, whom I adore, and certainly Clarice and certainly Buffalo Bill, Paul Krendler, Ruth Martin, Catherine Martin, all those really rich characters existed in Silence of the Lambs. And I was fascinated by the triangle of Catherine Martin, Ruth Martin and Clarice Starling. And it's a it's a much longer sort of a heavier story that like I think it'll probably serve this podcast if it comes more towards the end. But I think there's a really intense triangle there and I'm ex- I'm excited at how we're exploring it. Well, when it
2: comes to the character of Hannibal Lecter in the pilot and this will air after Mm -hmm. this will go up after the pilot has already aired Mm -hmm. uh you know there's there's the oblique mention of him without saying his name and you've talked about how you wanted to give clarice her voice and i totally understand that given your druthers though would you have wanted hannibal to have some tie in this universe or is he a distraction in your mind that you're perfectly happy not to have as a shiny object here's
4: the thing both of those things are true with there, but there's a huge caveats that come with that with that character. He's been played extraordinarily by three actors who are no—I mean, these are not slouches. These are big fucking guys, you know. And there have been three directors who have just—I mean, so what else? What are you gonna do? And his that character is so rich and he's so juicy and he's such a wonderful commentator on who we are. All that said, really smart people have been there. And I genuinely don't know what I could bring that was new. I mean, new is what's interesting to me. Um, Clarice has been an absolute mystery for 30 years. That's intriguing to me. And the questions that I had about Clarice were very odd. They were like, why Do I get the feeling she never went home for the holidays when she was at um, the FBI Academy? I feel like she had every single solitary meal in the cafeteria, even Thanksgiving. I feel like she had a duffel bag that she carried with her her whole life that belonged to her dad. And it went from her house in Kanawha County to her uncle's house on the Sheep Ranch to the Lutheran Orphanage to FBI Academy. What does she take with her? Like she has to have her whole life in a bag. What does she carry with her? Or these small little 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 gems. And none of that stuff was in Silence of the Lambs. And so I reached out to Thomas Harris. And when I say reached out, I mean I email stalked him, like us, like a, you know, and he was incredibly gracious. And he answered some of the questions that I had. And I framed it and, and sort of put it on my wall. But it seems there. What's not, what what he didn't write about Clarice were all the questions that I had.
2: Now, in order to sort of put Hannibal behind you, in the writer's room or at the beginning when you and Alex sat down, did you determine where he is for all of this? Like, in your mind, have you locked him up in a corner of the world where you know he's doing his thing and, and whatever and you just don't need to worry about it anymore?
4: Well, he did say that Clarice, you know, the world is more interesting with you in it. So my assumption is that he's eating his way through the Caymans or whatever it is that he's doing and having a perfectly fine time. Here's the thing. I I heard that. Um, He takes up a lot of space. God bless him. And he's been done so beautifully. And her life is not defined by one guy. His life may have been defined by her in a way. And now I'm earning the rage of the Twitter sphere. Not on Twitter, ha! Um, uh, <laughs> by saying that, sometimes I ask myself, "What? Where would he be if Clarice hadn't gone into the basement? He might still be in the basement, sort of all sad and thirty years older and toothless." Oops, sorry, uh, people who are mad at me already. But she made a, as big an impact on his life. I, I would venture, as he certainly did on hers. But again, it's not the only part of her life. And Bill, she killed Bill. She shot Bill. And she had a front row seat to Bill's actions in a way that she had with really nobody else in that book. And I find it rather extraordinary. And I find it extraordinary that a woman who was so young was able to carry that.
1: And, you know, having worked with Jonathan before on Rachel Getting Married, Mm -hmm. um, do you feel like you have, like, a certain simpatico with his vision that you're able to tap into here with Clarice? Jonathan is a very
4: singular voice. We knew a lot of things going in. We knew that we had to do very much our own thing. We had a lot of – there's a lot of specters in this property as, well, there should be, you know. The the universe is extraordinary. Jodie Foster is extraordinary. Jonathan Demi is extraordinary. When I was working with Jonathan, I – and I consider him, he's really an extraordinary person and one of the kindest people you'd ever meet. And he always said, when you don't know what the fuck to do, go towards the truth. So that's what we do. In terms of the way he shot that movie, that's all him. And, you know, anything else would be a pale imitation. Uh, but we went towards the truth. So in terms of what we, I got from him or what we got from him, a hundred percent. A hundred percent.
2: Was there any consideration as you were depicting the, the events from Sons of the Lambs of doing it in an entirely different style from the movie? Because you're obviously paying uh, homage to specific mm-hmm. visuals from that movie. And that's, yes. you know, that's a nod that you chose to make rather than, you know, doing something wildly divergent.
4: Yes. I think that had we... Decided to, you know, shoot straight down the barrel in that wonderful way that Demi did, um, we would have... It, it's a pale imitation because it's, the, the inception was not original. The in, it, and so if the inception's not original, then it becomes something else. That was extraordinary because it was what he imagined. I think we were paying as much attention to palette as I like to think the wonderfully talented Christy Zay and Jonathan did. The male gaze, G-A-Z-E, and certainly the white gaze are baked into all our scripts. um, And that was a big part of the movie. But it's this woman. It's this young woman who is, it's so funny, as a fictional character and as, as, I mean, we're talking about, you know, Jonathan and Thomas Harris and the actors that surrounded her and then Clarice in the book. She's always surrounded by men, so let's let's bust her out let's let her let's let her talk um, it's really it's really exciting.
1: So you know at, at the same time this is obviously the show is set in the in the 90s mm-hmm. and you cast a relative unknown. so can you t- talk a little bit about about finding the lead here like did you want to keep this casting as an unknown and let someone make the mark because you look at her performance and even in the trailers what you see is very feels very similar to, to like watching a young Jodie Foster. It does,
4: doesn't it? Rebecca mm-hmm. reads, she's extraordinary. She was the last woman to come in. And it's always like that. And you're tearing your hair out and going, oh my God. And Rebecca came in and she was this light. She was just this light. And she had this light around her and with her. Um, she's Australian. And we had no idea if she was going to be able to nail the accent. And she, she came in with it. Um, I think that she has a certain, she has the steeliness and the sort of scrappiness of Jodie Foster. But again, we wanted Rebecca to be her own to bring her own thing, and she did. She she brings a vulnerability. All of it. It wasn't like we were looking for a thing when the thing presented itself. We thought, okay, that's right. Well,
2: what were you what were you seeing before her? What were people trying to do that wasn't right for your vision of Clarice?
4: Straight up imitations of Jodie Foster, uh, which I understand. I mean, that performance is so ingrained. You know, it's so ingrained because it's extraordinary. A generally sort of Appalachian kind of tomboy. And I take issue with that word. I take issue with that whole thing. And that, and that felt fucked up and wrong. A general rangy kind ofness, And I was like, Clarice is not a gunslinger. She's not a tomboy. She is herself, and when some and so Rebecca came in as this fully formed woman, and we were like, "This is right. This is a hundred percent right." And she was, yeah.
1: So I, I just want to go back really quickly. You know, with such complicated rights to this. You know, I, I'm fascinated by this era that we're living in in the TV world right now of, of franchisation, right? You know, we just, you know, obviously this week we just heard like Yellowstone is becoming a franchise, right? It's getting a prequel series. You know, obviously Star Trek, you're well-versed in how many of those there are. And that's obviously a, a key centerpiece to what will be Paramount Plus, which is be rebranding in, in March. Mm-hmm. But as a member of the Viacom CBS family with Clarice over on CBS proper, have you thought about, What expanding this world would look like? And can you do that given the the property's complicated rights issues?
4: Oh, I have absolutely no um, no. I'm hugely confident that that I have seven years of story to tell about Clarice Starling because she was missing for seven years. This is like, you know, people talk about let's go find Amelia Earhart. Okay, I'd love to go find Clarice Starling. Tell me about her mother, tell me about her father. Why did her mother send her away as opposed to the other kids in the family? Because she has siblings. How did those siblings survive after Clarice was gone? What was the significance of the black and white crow that landed on her mother's cart um, when her mom was forced to be a hotel maid? How do you really feel about your dad who you who you idolize getting himself essentially held up by a by some small time very petty criminals, and then your whole life changes. Those questions, and how do you, it's 1993, there's no HR, there's none of the language, right, that we have. And she's sort of in the middle of the world's biggest frat house where everybody has a gun. How? And she's young, she's attractive, she's female, and she's famous, and she just came off this huge victory. Like, everybody's going to hate her guts. So what do you do with that? And you are particularly wired to speak monster. Like, that's dope. That's intriguing. So there's no shortage of, of Clarice. Well, it
2: it strikes me that if you do the math, going back to the movie, you and Clarice are roughly the same age. Um, do you probably yeah do do you sort of see that personal tie to the world that she was in in you know in the early nineties? Are are you able to look back on that with clear eyes through this show?
4: I'm certainly able to look back on the nineties with clear eyes in this show. I have a separate connection. Clarice, Clarice, the life of Clarice Starling in my life could not be more different. But I do, I did find. This really, and again, this is the story that I was like, I don't know, okay, maybe wait to the end, whatever. But this very intriguing connection to Clarice that is not readily apparent, but it's really the first thing that sort of smacked me in the head. And I will tell you guys about it, but you might be like, oh, but why did she tell us? But I'm happy to. I'm happy to if you want to hear. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So this is, now, it's 2017. And, uh, everyone, and it was a big me too moment. Um, and I wrote a letter, right. And I wrote a letter and I wrote a letter about the, to the Hollywood reporter. Published by the Hollywood reporter. Mm -hmm. And, uh, because I wrote that letter, I met a woman. She reached out to me and, she reached out to me via email through a friend of a friend and I resisted and I resisted. And this is a woman who is in a, the same circumstance and I resisted and I resisted. And then finally I said, okay, we can meet and we met and there was an extraordinary connection, but we don't spend time together. We don't talk that much over the phone. We text occasionally, and I say, I'm in the world. I, are you in the world? And she says, yeah, I'm in the world. So there, I was fascinated with the, I, and I became fascinated by, here I am, here's this woman. She and I had, were in almost the same place at almost the same time with the exact same destiny mapped out for us. It's a very particular sisterhood. It is very singular. And here we are now. Clarice and Catherine are the only two human beings alive who know what Bill's voice sounds like. Who know what the Precious's claws sound like on the floors of the stone well. Who knows what it's, who, who know what it smells like in there. Who knows what the who know what the, echoey, the how it echoes. That's a really deep and intimate connection, and completely singular. And then you put Ruth Martin into it. Ruth is the third part of a really wild triangle. What how do you What do, you do with that when your daughter comes out of that? Something that you can never understand, but you kind of have to understand. So that, I really wanted to explore that. I thought that was cool as hell. And I thought it was a cool thing to do with any energy that I was carrying around from the experience. And as a cool way to give voice to a really interesting sisterhood. And... Well, I'm not going to say sisterhood because that would exclude someone who is not of my gender, but it's, it's a really interesting little club and there's probably, there's more people in it than there should be in the world, but, but it makes you reach out. It's been pretty amazing just writing this with this part living in it.
2: When you, when you talk to executives and it's as clear as it is talking to you right now, that sort of. The, the, what dra- what drove you or attracted you to this involves sort of how people process trauma and how they process it in different ways and how they and how they avoid being seen as a victim in their own narrative. When, when you're giving that kind of pitch to a network executive do do their eyes glaze and do they say <laughs> get back to the serial killers or or do you actually see someone responding in the right way and you can tell, OK, they get it, too.
4: Here's the thing. This is what blew me away. MGM and CBS were like, this is the greatest thing ever. And I, we said, okay. And these come like you want to run out of the river before somebody changes their mind. But the, it, they were down with the exploration. And I think it's because it's completely different. It's completely, it's, it's for whatever reason, it doesn't exist on TV. And no one thinks of her, of Clarice as someone who's experienced a singular thing. Um, and then is going about her her life. Uh, they were really sort of turned on by it, and I was thrilled because that's what I wanted to write about.
1: Yeah, and it did get a, straight, a straight-to-series order, which CBS doesn't do every single day. It's more of a streaming thing. But did you guys have any trepidation about doing this on a broadcast network versus doing it for, say, a cable or, or even a stream? Oh, yeah. Obviously, I mean- Paramount+, Plus a big deal.
4: But when we, uh, when we first came up with it, we assumed, we assumed that it would be a streaming show. And uh, David Nevins very wisely said it will have more impact on network. Um, and we went back and forth because obviously there's less things one can say and one can do. And there are more constraints on network. But then I thought, well, fuck it. I think it's really much more interesting to see what we can get away with and to see what we can do within all those rules and regulations. Because that's what Clarice is doing. And they been, CBS has been extraordinary. I'm like, I love these guys. And, and it's, uh, yeah, it's been, it made sense. Clarice, Clarice is, you know, that's a wonderful scene in um, uh, Altered States when William Hurst is like, I like, this and I like this. She's, she's going side to side against nothing but rules and regulations and preconceived notions. And, and and they're all trying to alter her. And uh, it, it, the analogy works for me, and it works for me creatively.
2: Well, where have you actually hit against walls with standards? Like, have there been times you've wanted to swear? Have there been times where you had to tone down a piece of violence or a piece of, uh, like, autopsy photo or something? Not that CBS has had problems with graphic violence on, like, criminal minds and stuff. So. On
4: criminal minds stuff, yeah. No, I like to swear a lot. <laughs> And so constantly, it's really, really bad. I use like, like fuck is like a comma to me. So <laughs> there's, there's, I um only that way. If you think about that world, I'm much more interested in the psychological horror than the jump scare, um, the monsters within, and the operatic tableau of horror exists on television in beautiful ways already. I mean, if you just look at True Detective, you're just like, oh my, you know, season one, you think, oh, good Lord, this is so unbelievably violent and beautiful at the same time. Um, We're not in a position to do that, nor are we those filmmakers. So, but what we are invested in is psychological horror. Um, what goes on in your own heart and your own mind. That's for us the scary stuff. So they they were kind of like, do you want to put some more gore in? And we're like, eh, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. But we want to get weird.
1: <laughs> so, you know, when we did have Alex on the podcast uh, a couple of months back, he did mention about Clarice that he didn't want this to be a case of the week procedural. Mm-hmm. Correct. You know, and you look at the second episode, and Dan can speak to this more more than I can, but it does f- feel very much like a procedural standalone second mm-hmm. episode, so was that something that came from the network, or was that part of how you guys wanted to approach it
4: if you it's funny because we were Alex and I were talking about this that we were like, should we have given our uh, the the critics like one and three, or we switched the order between one, two, and three and it was also wild, you guys, because we were two days out. No, we were at the table read when of this show of and before we started shooting anything when we got shut down for COVID. This is way back in last March. We were, you know, 24 hours out and then everything shut down. And there's not a frame of this show that hasn't been shot during COVID. It's am- The crew is amazing. The crew is amazing. And we have a really safe set. Um, and I remember we had to completely rethink episode two because there were, all of a sudden, there were, up, 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 like, you can't have any, uh, we don't want anything in the city, nothing in a crowded street. So you it all the, 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 I was like, great, we're in a house. We're in a house. The story goes deep into Clarice's weirdness for the entire season. Two does feel like a swerve, and yet going back to Appalachia is a trigger for her that pays out through the rest of the season. So it's kind of like how much, because we we pay it off, does that mean that it's still, that it's sort of, that it feels more streamer in its vibe? Does that make sense, what I'm saying? We, ele- we wanted everybody to have room to breathe. We wanted Clarice to have room. We wanted each episode to have room. We wanted to write things in two that would pay off in an 11. And CBS has been amazing about it. Um, I don't know. I think that's a sophisticated way of ta- of network te- of going about network television. And we trust people bring- are bringing what they're bringing, and we trust people to to go with it. Um And it's been working. I mean, I'm really happy with our room and these scripts are extraordinary.
2: Well, now there's also obviously the big serialized case that she's involved in. I'm curious as to what the strategies were in crafting what the season arc would be, because obviously you want a case that ties into both Clarice's specialty and her particular pathology, but also you want it to be able to stand alone as its own thing that you're not just, oh, look, it's another serial killer who puts women in wells. So how did you build that out?
4: Yes. Well, we exactly that. We didn't want, like everybody would assume that it would be clear Clarice against a serial killer immediately. And then how do you do a serial killer? And if you wanted to do a serial killer show, how would you do it in a not regular way? So we thought of maybe the idea that serial killers are amongst us every day. And I think the 2020 has shown us that, that, I mean, there's, you know, danger is everywhere, and it's not where you think, and people have been behaving with impunity for a long fucking time. Um, So there is no shortage of things, of areas to, to say, these guys are the bad guys. These guys are up to some serious fucking shenanigans, and they're up to no good, and I'm cursing too much. I'm sorry. Um... So it was about that. It was about how to make it personal for her, yet different from anything that we would have ex- been that you would expect. And I'm I'm so in love with our writers room. I mean, like I think that we succeeded. I think that we succeeded.
2: I have a couple little psychology type questions. Yes. Um,
4: Five. When chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> When, when you're dealing with- White album, white album.
2: Yeah. <laughs> when you're dealing with a, the with a Thomas Harris character like Will Graham, he's got this magic that allows him to see the world in a magical way. It's, all, it's almost like he's a superhero. Clarice does not have that. She, she has something very different that makes her good at her job. How do you quantify what it is that allows her to be as good as she is versus a magic man like Will Graham?
4: Clarice exposes any untruth in the room because she is so dense with her own particular being. This is this woman. She does not pretend that she's something. She is so unbelievably self-aware. And it, you can see it in Silence of the Lambs, the movie, where she, the doctor is going on and on and on and on about something and talking about patients and da-da-da-da, and Clarice says, oh, yeah, well, you ate yours and his face falls, and you see that this woman is disarming because she refuses to be anything other than herself. Some of her struggle is her desire for approval, for institutional approval. She's an orphan, so that I can understand why she would have that and almost and need that. But uh, I'm not going to say that she's a knight in shining armor, because I think that's diminishing her. And I'm, the Persephone thing, I'll go on about it, like, at another time, <laughs> so nobody immediately turns this off. She is entirely herself and there is no bullshit within her. And one's ego, her ego is grounded in a need to save the lamb as opposed to your, her ego being grounded in a need to see herself as a certain way. Those are very different things. Um, so you can't really call her out for bullshit. And I think that her Chilton was full of shit. And um, if Will Graham, if I recall, went completely bananas and did not, it didn't go well for him. Right. And, and Barney liked Clarice and the gunnery sergeant on, at Quantico liked Clarice and Crawford understood that Clarice was a unique tool because she simply is. And it's something in there. I'm no rocket scientist, but it's something in there.
2: And this is something that I only started thinking of earlier when you were talking about Catherine and Clarice. But since we have you on the line, I feel like I want to ask. Ask anything you want. The way Catherine is defined here is that she's kind of trying to cast off aspects of her trauma, including basically herself, her her physicality, her weight. Why does she still have Precious?
4: That's a really good question. (laughs) (laughs) That's a really good question. And it's my favorite, like, shrinky question. Because don't we always, as humans, completely embrace the thing that we say we don't want to embrace and at the same time run screaming from the thing that we really need? Yes, we do. Precious is probably a million different things to Catherine. Precious saved Catherine's life, right? Right. Precious was the only warm living being that existed in that well with Catherine. Um, Do you, and this is a serious question. If you're Catherine, do you think that you would be okay with Precious living with another family? Just like in your imagination. It's a weird question. I gotta say that I'd keep Precious. I would totally keep Precious. I bet that Ruth does not want Precious around But for Catherine, I don't know. Precious was the thing that saved her life, man. Don't you make me hurt your dog. She didn't want to hurt that dog. That was some extraordinary stuff. And Catherine Catherine bought time in a way that no other woman that Bill encountered did. So she's pretty fucking cool, too.
1: Uh, So I do want to ask about some of the other things that, that you have going on. Uh, you're also reteaming again here with Alex Kurtzman on a Showtime Limited series about your legendary grandmother Lena. Yes.
4: Warren.
1: Yes. How is the creative process for you going considering this is such a, a personal project? How does it compare with, with doing other things that that aren't necessarily rooted in your own life? It's it's actually
4: tricky because I'm
1: so deep that I have no idea
4: what I'm seeing. I'm like, no, is this about the time where she kept that ham that she got for Christmas in 1978 and it was in a freezer, like the wool, like, 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 and she would take it out like a woolly mammoth and, like, you want some ham? I was like, no, I don't think that she would hack at it. it was just f- and then, you know, is it like that? And Alice was saying, I don't know if people want to see a show about a ham, Jenny? <laughs> and I say, yeah, I know, but it was just really, really important. Or what about the fact that she had that, you know, those that grandma candy? that looks like little liquor bottles with the foil. And you're like, what is this? And it, and it's so bad. Or the strawberry things like, is it about candy? And Alex is like, I don't know. Maybe it's not about the candy. It's like, I, I, I think it's about the candy. Um, and her refrigerator was filled with only tiny food, like cornichol and tiny jars of mustard that somebody gave her because it was really like weirdly glamorous. Um, That said, you can see that I'm pretty deep in. So to have another person there, uh, and my mother wrote some extraordinary books about the subject, and to have another person there to see the whole forest as opposed to the trees is uh, helpful, to say the least. Because I'll talk about, you know, why does this woman have curtains from the Ritz, hotel in Paris from 1954 that, and why is, and, but letting her dog Nellie pee on them. And then why is she, where is this woman wearing those, those, those tennis socks with the little pom-poms and a pair of Roger Vivier's red satin mules that he made for her with sweatpants and this sort of Donna Karen top with this apron that says Casey masterpiece as she's cooking shit. in the, it's like real diva stuff. Um, she was pretty extraordinary. None of this is probably going to end up in the podcast. Cause you're like, what is she talking about? But it's pretty extraordinary in the detail, in the detail. I find her quite fascinating
2: as an artist. Well, listening to you talk, how are you going to let somebody else direct that project? Or are you, or are you going to have to do it yourself?
4: I have no fucking idea. No, directing is the worst job ever, <laughs> ever. I mean, people always are asking you a question, right? When do you get to be left alone? So no. So I'll just be the really annoying person next to the director, poking her. You know, saying, "Excuse me." that's not. No, 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 no. Excuse me. I'll, I'll be horrible. I'll be horrible. It's all <laughs> right. Whatever. <laughs> I can live with me.
2: And 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 how do you de- and how do you decide with all of this? What's personal and off-limits to a script like this versus what you want to share with the world?
4: I don't know what's off-limits. My grandmother, part of the story is people insisting that this woman be something for them. And I think all of us can understand what that is. You have to be this. She also had to freaking represent an entire community every time she brushed her teeth. I'm sure that a lot of people can understand what that feels like. If, and I think about this and I haven't landed yet, what is my responsibility in this endeavor? Who does it serve if I am protective because I love, I am in love with her because she is an extraordinary person is her Is she served by me being protective? Is she served and of course there's some stuff that it's nobody's fucking business of course but isn't it more interesting if we see the cost of what that life if we see the cost of a life like that. That's more interesting to me than the nobility of the week biopic you know than the I I am noble and I endured and I, I endured, I have a lot to say, which I shan't, shan't do on this podcast about what women of color have to go through on screen in order to get stuff made about them or get, and I'm just like, I don't need to see any more violence on black bodies in my life. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty tapped out. I'm good with that. How about an exploration of a woman as an artist? That's cool. So, and you can't do that without looking at a whole person. You know, that said, you know, my mother's going to say what she's going to say, and she's going to say whatever, and okay. All right. I can live with me.
2: (laughs) Did you always grow up thinking that being a director was the worst job in the world? I mean, it, it seems as if you might have potentially seen some of the positives of being a director as you were growing up.
4: Yes. Um, but dad, oh, dad left the house at 7 a.m. and we had dinner together at 630 every night, every single night. So, um, but I always, I, I always understood that people just asked him questions constantly and it just seemed like, oh, God, I mean, I get to write stuff and then I get to take a nap. You know, that's that's exciting. That's my fa- That's like my favorite
1: part. I love that so much. <laughs> yeah, and I do want to ask, you know, obviously with the big uh, platform rebranding in March at, at Paramount Plus and CBS All Access, with all of the the things that you have with Star Trek going on there, how is that franchise going to be positioned as part of the rebranding of the service? Like, are, how much more content are you going to be developing in that world? I mean, you, you know, you're looking at Disney and they've got 10 Star Wars TV shows coming and then 10 more Marvel shows coming. Like, is that how big you see the Trek franchise being as part of Paramount Plus?
4: I am fully not qualified to answer that question. And so I'll just say I'm an Aquarius and I like Thai food. And that's <laughs> what I got to say. I, I just I'm just straight up not qualified to answer that question. That's very much an Alex question. Um, and because he was Trek man before I became a Trek person. I still kind of get in arguments with him about who's nerdier and that I was never a nerd. And I was cool because my first, I went and saw The Clash when I was 12 years old at Bonds in 1981. And he's like, no, you're a nerd. And I'm like, no, I have pictures of me with The Clash when I was 12. And he's like, no, you're still a nerd. So I don't know. <laughs> Daniel, did you see The Clash at Bonds in 1981? No, you're younger than me.
2: I, I certainly did not.
4: <laughs> Are you a Clash fan?
2: I liked Clash, but they were yeah. but by the time I was already old enough they were they were done. They were they were over. They were past. <laughs> oh
1: dear. Okay, yeah, it's a great not, band. I think my my claim to fame maybe uh Duran Duran is my first concert. That's cool. Duran Duran and Erasure, followed by Whitney Houston on her first album. That's really
4: cool.
2: Yeah.
1: That's what I Dan. Uh
2: my first concert is much more embarrassing. It is the girl group Exposé who had the hit song What You Don't Know Might Hurt You. They had a whole concert? They had <laughs> 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 Excuse me, they also had the Point of No Return. Anyway, I have no extra. I love that, I know song. that song. I know that okay. song.
4: I know Point of No so, Return. So, anyway, two songs. That is a,
2: if, we, if we are talking about our first concerts, I mean, I went to concerts with my parents, but my first concert with a friend, not with parents, was Expose when I was 13. And there's nothing there's nothing to be proud of in that.
4: <laughs> well, no. First of all, if they had two songs, does that mean that you were home by curfew? <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> there might have been some really good uh, opening acts who were every bit as uh, as hit-filled, so... <laughs>
4: okay, wait, no, I'm not done with Dan. What did you see with your parents?
2: Oh, we went to... Uh- I mean, my parents are sort of, you know, they went to Berkeley in the in the early 70s. So we would always be going to, I don't know, to Beach Boys concerts or to Labor Day concerts with Pete Seeger and other various leftist icons, that kind of thing.
4: Uh, <laughs> and yet here you are. <laughs> and here you are with us. No, I had to do that, too. I had to do some of that le- that the like kid lefty stuff, too. Yeah, it was It was scarring.
1: i I, i'm gonna bring it full circle my parents were not really big into concerts when i was growing up instead they were very big into movies which is part of the reason where i get that love from but uh, my mom remains to this day a huge star trek fan so i remember going to see all the star trek movies when i was a kid with her so
4: the i can't imagine my mother i have one of those mom my mom is so dainty which is not a word that anybody has ever used to describe me ever and but she's She's like a she's like a cardigan and pearls kind of mom, and she went to Radcliffe in 1957. And she's like, "Oh, the one with the ship?" I'm like, "Yes, mom, the one with the ship in space." Yes, mom, the one with (laughs) yes with the yes. Ooh, and she's she's a. I remember she used to dance around the the house to a song by the Culture Clash when. You guys are don't even—it's the Culture Club, and oh my god,
1: (laughs) no, I I was like, you say Culture Club, Culture Club, I know, Culture Club, (laughs) it's
4: like the Culture Clash. I love this and the Sting. I was like, yes, Mom, go, yeah, Yeah. Oh my god, the Pete Seeger
2: (laughs) (laughs) Labor Day concerts—we would go Labor
4: Day, yes, yes, the Pete
2: Seeger, Pete Seeger, Psycon, you know, all of those, all of those great protest anthem singers. So definitely, that is that is in my dna um going to another quickly to another of the million projects you have going it was announced today that uh chiwetela is going to be starring in man who fell to earth why was that a project that you gravitated towards and how is that going to be different from the nicholas Regg movie
4: gravitated towards it because anything that had david bowie in any avenue of it in the garage I, 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 I mean, he is, he is, he is, he is him. And um, Alex said, "Do we want to do this?" And I said, "Yes!" Thinking absolutely nothing, having no. Um, Chiwetel Ejiofor is an extraordinary, extraordinary actor, and we've been writing, we've been writing this for three years. Um, the movie. For me, the most extraordinary thing about that movie was that performance by that man. Um, and we knew, yeah, I'm busy, right? <laughs> Damn. Just
1: a few projects.
4: Damn, I know. Uh, we knew that if we tried to chase Bowie in any way, we were done because there is no one like that man. Um, so that, so we went in a completely different direction. With our alien. I was intrigued by the idea of an alien with virility, an alien with uh, the Bowie character was quite passive. You couldn't really have based a series on the, almost observing him, which is what that movie did, and this really is, and observing how we impacted him. I don't think you could base a series on that. So we needed someone who would. We needed our alien to be propulsive and forward-moving, and that's what the show is. It's really, the cast is, I, I'm not allowed to tell you the other stuff about the cast, but it's as out there and wonderful as Chiwetel. It's also kind of a dream. I don't know what's going on this year, you guys, for real, because I'm in love with Clarice Starling. I'm in love with Chiwetel 4 I'm in love with my grandma, And I'm in love with Star Trek. And I'm not sure what I did in my past life to reap the creative benefits of this year. Because I get to write for these characters and for that woman, my grandma. And that's like, that is a joy that I never thought that I would get to experience. And I'm an old broad. I'm an old black lady, man. They don't let people like me do this shit. And... And here I am doing it, and I may sound like a like a total nerd, but I don't know. I mean, show business is cool <laughs> It's really cool
1: that is so so beautifully said, I think it's impossible to come up with any other follow up other than the one that we always end our interviews with, which is what are you watching and enjoying these days?
4: um I started watching, and I'm late to the party on. All my television watching, right? I started watching you, and I was actually really intrigued with you. I didn't know it was going to be as funny as I thought it was going to be. And Penn Badgley is surprising me in many, many different ways. Um, been watching some of Bridgerton. I think the palette is so much fun, and everybody's really gorgeous. So I'm like, everybody's gorgeous. Okay, I'll be here. I'll be here. And. That's kind of where I'm at. I mean, I tend to fall asleep at night. I'm a mom, you know, and I've got two kids, so I usually I tend to fall asleep like nine or nine thirty. Is that lame? It's lame, right? But yeah, I, 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I fall asleep pretty soon. But um, uh, you and Bridgerton is kind of kind of where I'm at. I had a great time with Queens Gambit. I had a, where does I have a great time with um, Trek original series. Always, always. Um, I can't decide who I have my biggest crush on right now at Sulu. (laughs) But, yeah, that's
1: where I'm at. Well, Jenny, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a total blast. Oh, I'm
4: so glad. And I'll talk about baseball anytime with you. I'll talk about, Dan, about what it is when your parents make you do lefty things and you really just want to sit home and eat, like, freaking Lucky (laughs) Charms or some horrible (laughs) capitalist cereal, which is what all I ever wanted to do in my life. And my mom's like, no. Yeah, anytime. I am here. Thank you. Thank you.
2: Clarice airs Thursdays at 10 p.m. on CBS. Number five.
1: As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics Corner. Lots of new releases this week, Dan. You've got Hip Hop Uncovered on FX, The Luminaries on Stars. Last Week Tonight with John Oliver returns on HBO. Kevin James' comedy, The Crew, launches on Netflix. Young Rock and Keenan make their debut on NBC. Queen Sugar is back on Own. Good Trouble returns on Freeform. Behind Her Eyes also launches on Netflix, and It's a Sin arrives on HBO Max. Lots to pick from this week, my friend. What you got?
2: Lots to pick on, and uh, the thing that people seem to say is the best is the one that I haven't gotten to, but uh, so you can read our colleague Ingu Kang's review of It's a Sin. I have not watched it, but people really do say it's terrific. Uh, I simply cannot been, wait to watch that. There's simply been too much stuff and had too much stuff to review, so I will get to it, though. I promise. Um the stuff I've been reviewing has been, I would say, less good, but still interesting. Uh, Hip Hop Uncovered, which premieres tonight, which is to say Friday on FX, uh, is good, and it's it's one of the shows that was announced as part of FX's original. Uh, we're going to do more documentaries slate, and it is it's a very vague and nebulous title, and I think it's important more than anything to clarify to people what the sh- The documentary series actually is, so the expectations are properly aligned. In my review, I I compared it to kind of going to a a shelf with a multi-volume history of hip-hop and taking out volume three and starting there. It's an intermediate course that assumes that you probably have had the intro course. And so if you know your hip-hop ABCs, this is a good way to get into your hip-hop BCDs, etc., later volumes, later letters, etc. It is the story of some of the OGs who weren't necessarily MCs in the period, who weren't necessarily producers or record label moguls, but who were part of hip-hop from the ground up. So these are people who were hustlers, stick-up men, dealers who— found connections to hip-hop as they were going legit. So if you already know names like Bimmy or Trick Trick or Big U, these are the people who it's about. It's about the people who who maybe did spend five or ten years uh, dealing drugs, who maybe were involved in more than a couple drive-bys, who maybe did spend five or ten years in jail. But in these cases, they also found themselves into record label work. They found their way into actual MC work. They found their way into, I don't know, managing. So it's it's kind of the stories to the side of the stories that you know in hip hop. And I found it very interesting in that respect. Uh, these are all fantastic storytellers, these people, because they have lived lives that are unquestionably remarkable. Uh, But if you are looking for something that's more overviewy on hip-hop and the nature of hip-hop and the evolution of hip-hop, there there are a lot of large gaps, and so you just have to be aware. I I found it very interesting, but if you're just jumping in and going, ooh, okay, here's my, you know, Hip-Hop 101 course, that is not what this is. The Luminaries on stars is one of two miniseries premiering this week, uh, starring Bono's daughter Eve Hewson, who people will know from The Nick, perhaps. And if you don't know her from The Nick, you should watch The Nick, because she's great and it's great. Uh, The Luminaries is an adaptation of Eleanor Caton, or Caton. I don't know how her name is pronounced, but that's who she is. Her Man Booker Prize-winning novel, and it is a 19th century New Zealand gold-mining mystery slash romance. Um, And it is... Not all that similar to Caden's novel in terms of structure or thematics. I found it interesting kind of as a as a graduate thesis on storytelling in the peak TV era and adaptations in the peak TV era. So that's a sexy way of describing what it is, especially if you want to check it out as a mystery or a romance, because it's a romance in which the two main characters have zero chemistry, zero reason to be together as a couple, and really aren't worth investing in. It's a mystery in which, by the time it was revealed what the solutions to the mystery were, I was so confused that I no longer cared. So the two primary levels on which you're supposed to approach this show, uh, I was not interested— it's beautifully produced. It's all shot in New Zealand, and it's it's utterly gorgeous to look at. The costumes are wonderful. Uh, Ava Green is in it. She is wonderful because she's always great. The cast is, is a really solid cast. Um, it, it's a show that works, but it's a show that will not work for a lot of people, and it's a show I'm not gonna fight very hard to get you to watch, but it's interesting. Uh, let's see, what else? I've only watched one episode piece of Young Rock and Keenan, which are both premiering on NBC next week. I chuckled several times at Keenan and found him extremely likable as a leading man, which is not the least bit surprising because he's been extremely likable on SNL for going on 75 years at this point. So he is there's there's a reason why he keeps working and he's had the longevity he has, because he's both very funny and you, you find yourself sympathizing with him, which is necessary because the premise of the show is he's a, a morning show host whose wife died a year earlier and now he's raising his kids and also for some reason his father-in-law is played by Don Johnson. It's tough to explain or understand. Didn't laugh a lot, but chuckled a few times and there's potential here. I was less into the one episode of The Rock show that I watched. It, it's sort of a, it's a bunch of, things going on, almost none of which were funny. Um, but I am a large fan of Ninochka Khan going back to, obviously, Don't Trust the Bee in Apartment 23, and, uh, you know, Fresh Off the Boat also. And you can see kind of little hints of how this could be good. The The ridiculous thing I want to say is I kind of wish they had done this with less direct involvement from The Rock, because he's kind of distracting here. And every time you go back to him, you you go, gee, I kind of wish that if The Rock wanted to do a network sitcom, he'd just starred in a network sitcom, um, as opposed to being kind of the bookends of a network sitcom in which three different people play The Rock and none of them are as interesting or charismatic as The Rock. Uh, but yes, I, I have more episodes of this to watch. And so I have hopes that the premise was just being slowly laid out in the pilot and maybe it will get better. So there you go. That That's a lot of stuff, uh, none of which am I saying they're all fantastic, but, you know, some things will scratch people's itches.
1: For more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to THR's Now See This newsletter. This feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thanks for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. We'll be back next week when we'll be joined by For All Mankind and Outlander executive producer Ron Moore.
2: Be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little review thing. It really does help move us up the search lists on all Of those aforementioned podcasting platforms. We're always on Twitter and we're always happy to hear your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, criticisms, etc. Uh, but if you have actual serious questions for future mailbag segments, email us at TV's Top 5 at THR.com. That's TV's Top 5, the number 5 at THR.com. Until next week, Leslie.
1: Until next week, Dan.
0: 18 plus.